Well, who is this one that we've sung about? Who is this one at Christmas that we celebrate? Of course, not just at Christmas, but hopefully all year round. Who is he? I remember as a kid, one Christmas season in particular, this saying got popularized. Jesus is the reason for the season. I can still see the bumper stickers uh, in, in my mind's eye. Jesus is the reason for the season. Fair enough. But who is Jesus? We could start by thinking about his name, Jesus. It was told to Mary. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, God saves. Or just a couple of verses later, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who he is. He's Jesus. He's salvation. He's God with us. We could think about who he is according to his titles. He's the Christ, which means he's the Messiah or the promised one, the long-awaited one. He's the fulfillment. He's the answer. He's the Son of God, we're told. He's Lord. And we could think of the many metaphors that Jesus and the other biblical authors use for him. In John's gospel account, Jesus is the Word, the Word of God in the flesh. He is also the water in John chapter 4, water which forever satisfies. And again in John chapter 7, he's the bread which comes down from heaven, according to John chapter 6. He is the light of the world, we're told in John chapter 8. And in John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Now we could continue to list metaphors for another couple dozen or so. The Bible is just loaded with these. But I want us to give particular attention today to that imagery of Jesus as the shepherd as we think about who he is and what it means for us. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10, if you have a Bible. It's in the New Testament. The books go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, John being especially unique. In John chapter 10, verse 1, there we find Jesus saying this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to st steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We'll stop there. Now, if you're the type that uses the sermon notes page on the back of the bulletin, you might take a look there and notice that we have three points. And these three points really come out of what is the body of the passage in verses 7 to 18. And if you're the type that would prefer uh, more detail than less detail, uh, really, let me show you what we're dealing with in these 21 verses. We're dealing with an illustration that's just stated in verses 1 to 6, but then an explanation that's given by Jesus about that illustration in the body of verses 7 to 18, and then you have a decision made by the people Who is this one who's saying these things? Is it good or bad? A decision, verses 19 to 21. Again, our three points on the sermon notes page will come out of the explanation that Jesus provides in the body. And that's an explanation that's apparently needed since, as John puts it in verse 6, this figure of speech they didn't understand. And so an explanation is needed and then given. And we'll get to the explanation that Jesus gives in just a bit. But first, we're going to sit on this figure of speech, this illustration that Jesus begins to lay out in verses 1 to 6. So just a warning, it'll be a little longer than usual before we get to our actual points or our outline, as we sometimes call it. So let's think about that imagery of sheep and shepherd. Imagery that would be familiar to Jesus' audience just on a practical level. They see this stuff. We don't. Most of us have never met a shepherd. Maybe you've never even actually seen someone sheep herding in, in real life. We lived in England for a little time, and so we would see people shepherding off to the side of the road. But still, I know very little of it firsthand. Not these people. These people know what a sheep pen is. That's where you put the sheep. They would know that, that shepherds would, would often lie down, especially when traveling, they would lie down at the gate of the pen in order to ensure the safety of the sheep, right? They're the means by which people get in or get out in which, in which sheep get in or get out. And they would know in those days that someone trying to steal sheep doesn't go through the gate, but they hop in from another way, as Jesus indicates here. In fact, Jesus' audience would also have a lot of familiarity with this as a biblical theme, not just a practical matter, but a biblical theme. It's a metaphor, an illustration used, well, well over 60 different times, at least in 60 different plus passages The metaphor is used of God as shepherd and his people as his sheep. It's like the imagery of God being like a father and his people being like his children, which is, it's loaded in meaning. It's multi-layered in its significance. So the sheep shepherd illustration is as well. It's familiar to you. We sang about it several times this morning already on purpose. Maybe your favorite psalm is Psalm 23, which begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want or lack. In fact, there are just brief phrases all over the Old Testament about God's shepherding. Psalm 80, O shepherd of Israel. Or Psalm 95, We are the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. 
You can read through the Old Testament. If you get familiar with it and comfortable with it, the theme of sheep and shepherding becomes so common that you may be forgiven for not even noticing at times that that's a sheep and shepherd reference, like God's staff or his leading or his feeding or his care and protection. And most significantly in the Old Testament, it is in the prophets, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where there are long passages which employ this sheep-shepherd imagery. And in those passages, oftentimes, there's both confrontation and comfort. There's confronting going on, and there's comfort. You see, they confront the spiritual leadership of the day as being poor shepherds. They were to shepherd the people on God's behalf, And where they weren't doing that, the prophets confronted those poor shepherds, but also comforted the people by announcing a day when God himself would show up on the scene and be the true and full, final fulfillment of this shepherding theme for his people. And the most important of these is Ezekiel 34. So if you want to turn there, you can In your Bibles, if you want to just look up on the screens as I read from Ezekiel 34, we're going to read a good portion of it. Even while I I skip some verses just for, for time's sake, we'll still read a good portion of this chapter. Ezekiel 34, listen, starting in verse 1. Remember, it confronts the poor shepherds, the the unfaithful shepherds and it comforts God's people with him coming to shepherd one day the word of the Lord came to me Ezekiel says son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them even to the shepherds thus says the Lord God ah shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves should not shepherds feed the sheep you can skip ahead to verse 6 God says, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Skip to verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Let's get to verse 22. We'll just read a couple more verses. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be as a prey I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, it may be mysterious that it says here that God himself will shepherd his sheep. Then it turns and says that David will shepherd God's sheep. And never mind that David has been dead a a few hundred years at the time of Ezekiel. But just tuck those details away for now, how God and David can be said 
to be shepherds of God's people. What's clear enough and what is the primary emphasis is, of course, that God is going to be the one to do it. What's, what's clear from the passage is that God is confronting the poor spiritual shepherding of the religious leaders in that day, and he is comforting his people with that word of promise that he will one day shepherd them himself, and he will shepherd them like only God can do. So all Israel should have remained in anticipation of the day when God would so faithfully shepherd his people, not least the religious leaders who were given that charge of shepherding those people until the real true shepherd comes. So when Jesus begins to speak of sheep and shepherds, true shepherds, bad shepherds, when he begins to, to speak of the sheep being led and and being fed, their ears should have been tuned to the frequency of Ezekiel 34. These are Bible teachers. These are, these are people who know the scriptures. And yet, verse 6 of John 10, this figure of speech, they didn't understand. They didn't understand. So now we move on to Jesus' explanation of these matters in verse 7 and following. And notice that there's a shift from third person in verses 1 to 6. It's all he and they. To, to now it's first person. I am. Verses 7 and following. He, the shepherd, was described in the first six verses. They couldn't get it. They should have, but they didn't. And Jesus puts it real low shelf for them. Let me make this really clear. I'm talking about me. I am the good shepherd. So again here, Jesus uses that formula of I am, which identifies himself with God. Since I am is one way we might translate God's personal name which was first revealed back in Exodus 3, I am. Jesus has done this deliberately as we've been seeing in recent weeks as we work our way through these famous I am statements in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And now here, he hitches good shepherd to his I am declaration further identifying himself with God and in now identifying himself with those promises of Ezekiel 34. And by the way, that's how it will be God and David who shepherd the sheep. Jesus is God and Jesus is the son of David. He is the one to fulfill all the promises of that shepherd king, King David, long ago, Jesus is both God and David. Now let me highlight three primary aspects to Jesus' good shepherding. What's it look like? What's he mean by it? Well, first, Jesus is the good shepherd in stark contrast to the false shepherds. In stark contrast to the false shepherds. That's who he's referring to by these thieves and robbers in verse 8. Those who seek to steal and destroy the sheep. These are referring to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So too is the stranger. The stranger whose voice the sheep do not hear. As well as the hired hand who deserts the sheep at the first sign of trouble. All of these are images for the failed human leadership of the Jewish people. So as comforting is that picture of Jesus as shepherd for his people, it is first a confrontation for those who had not been shepherding God's people on God's behalf as they were called to do. It's confrontation. We saw it in Ezekiel 34. There were, there were failings of the shepherds, not literal shepherds, spiritual shepherds, religious leaders 
And it's a problem still a reality 600 years later after Ezekiel's time. In fact, look back to John chapter 9 with me, if you would. Right? John 9 comes before John 10, and that's relevant here. Here in John 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And from that arose a controversy among the religious leaders. And by the way, we know that the occasion of the healing of the blind man, that controversy is still in view in chapter 10 because the very last verse that we read of our passage, chapter 10, verse 21, people ask, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That happened in chapter 9. And so we'll look to chapter 9 to see what the controversy was about and how it was handled. Or, or we could put it this way, let's see how religious leaders in these days are shepherding the sheep. Chapter 9, we'll read starting in verse 24. This is now picking up in the midst of the controversy. So for the second time, the religious leaders called the man who had been blind and is now healed and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. The blind man answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Well, it's in that context that Jesus says, yeah, there are some who pretend to be shepherds and they're not. They harm the sheep. They cast them out. But I am the good shepherd. In fact, logically, prior to him being the good shepherd, he refers to himself as the door or the gate to the pen. He's the way in. He's the only way in. If the pen symbolizes salvation, acceptance with God, being in, being among his sheep, well, Jesus is the way in. Verse 9 of chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Remember that imagery of real shepherds laying down at night at the gate of the sheep pen in order to ensure the, the safety of the sheep. In that sense, the shepherd was literally the, the gate. He's the, he's the way in. He's the only way in or out. And Jesus is that door. He's that gate. He's the way in. As he'll say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And then Jesus goes on, and he will go in and out in fine pasture. Now, going in and out doesn't refer to going in and out of salvation or going in and out of God's protection or in and out of being his sheep. It's just the natural everyday life for a sheep. The sheep weren't supposed to spend 24 hours a day in a pen. They're in the pen at night. And then they go out in the day. 
And they find pasture. They find food. They eat. They graze. They mosey about. They do what sheep do. That's the natural rhythm for the sheep. And Jesus is describing healthy sheep who have the safety of the pen, and yet they have the joy, the freedom, the the flourishing of going in and out and finding pasture. This idea of going in and out actually goes back to Numbers 27. Numbers 27, there, the spiritual leadership mantle is being handed from Moses to Joshua, his successor. And there, Moses prays to God, Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And for a time, Joshua was that man. He led the people well, even valiantly. But Jesus picks up on that language of healthy sheep, healthy shepherd, to show that he is a a kind of Joshua par excellence. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He is the source of salvation. He's the source for sustenance, for real living. We all, by nature, are outside of God's pen. We're outside of God's family. We're outside of salvation by nature. We're outside of safety. We're outside of spiritual sustenance. And there are some guides, some quote-unquote guides available to us, some would-be shepherds, some gurus, authors, speakers, personalities, we sometimes say. And there are other guides out there, but any other guide than Jesus is a phony, is a fake. If it would presume to be this kind of shepherd. You see, there are those out there who would call themselves shepherds in a sense, leaders, thought makers. They can't get us into God's pen They can't bring true safety. They don't really feed or sustain or satisfy. They don't really have our best interests in mind. When trouble comes, they're out of there. They see the wolf coming and they leave the sheep. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But not Jesus, the good shepherd. And proof is in the pudding. Just look at his care. That's second. Jesus is the good shepherd who abundantly cares for his sheep. And his care is described in such manifold ways. Charles Spurgeon, over the course of his long ministry, he preached 15 different sermons from John 10. It's just, there's just so much there. They're just, it's nugget after nugget of insight into the specificities and degree of Christ's shepherding care for his people. He calls them. You see in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Shepherds in ancient days, perhaps still today, they had a call for their sheep. They had a distinct sound that they would make that the sheep would would know that that's the shepherd. They would be drawn to it. They would come towards it. But Jesus takes that idea and elevates it. He calls each sheep by name. Not just one call for them all. Each by name, it's personal, it's intimate. He calls, and he calls unto salvation. 
Again, anyone who enters by me will be saved. You'll be included in God's family, in his pen. You'll be in safety. How? How will that happen? How will he save? Well, he lays his life down for the sheep. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, in verse 15, in one other time, somewhere in verse 18 or 19, he lays his life down for the sheep. Now, a good shepherd in ancient Near East would certainly be willing to risk his life to protect his sheep, just like young David did when he fought off many bear to protect his father's sheep. But Jesus, again, elevates the, the metaphor, the, the reality, the word picture. He says that he lays down his life for the sheep. And this, of course, refers to the cross. The cross was Jesus' death, and that death was not just accidental, but purposeful, volitional. It was sacrificial. It was what we say is substitutional. So that word for is so important in what Jesus says. He lays his life down for the sheep in their place. They are worthy of death. And he takes that death upon himself and bears it for them that they may be saved. I lay down my life, verse 17, that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again referring to the resurrection. You see, the, the death of Jesus was no accident, and the resurrection of Jesus was no kind of emergency plan to fix the thing that went wrong on Good Friday. No, it was all planned. It was, according to verse 18, a charge given from the Father to the Son. He lays down his life. For whom? Who does he do this for? Well, it says here, for his sheep. It's those he knows. Verse 14, I know my own. My own know me. It's to them that he calls. It is they who hear. They know his voice. And inevitably, they come. They will come when he calls. Jesus will go on later to say to the religious leaders, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now those who are his sheep and those who do come when he calls do not come to him reluctantly, begrudgingly, hesitantly, they come willingly and happily. How could they do otherwise? He has attuned their ear to his voice. Or as we put it elsewhere, he has opened their eyes to see. None of us by nature see Christ aright. None of us by nature find him beautiful and desirable. The gospel is foolishness and a stumbling block. Except for those being saved to them, it's the power of God unto salvation. And that attuned ear to his voice is actually a, a gift of grace purchased for them when Christ laid down his life for them. Salvation is a package deal, we could say. And these are mysterious matters, to be sure. But they should be comforting to every Christian. Your salvation isn't given to you in parts. It's a package deal. From eternity past to eternity future. And that's true for those who are not just of Israel. 
Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. These other sheep, not of the fold, that means not of Israel's fold, refers to the world, the Gentiles. This means that God's saving plan is it's going global in Jesus. As this same John would later record for us in the book of Revelation when he was given a vision of heaven's praise. They're singing up there, worthy are you, O Lord. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Those are the other sheep, not of the fold of Israel, who are brought in, and they do come. And so you might wonder at at any point here this morning, well, am I among his sheep? Am I going to hear his voice? Have I heard his voice? Well, if you have, you are of his sheep. Make no doubt about it. If you have entered in by Jesus, the gate, the door, the way in, rather than trying to sneak in some other way, if you've entered in by Jesus willingly, happily, freely, then praise God, it's because you savingly heard his voice. You heard it because he came calling. He came calling because, praise God, you are among his sheep. And when he brings them in like that, when they hear his voice, the rest of verse 16, there will be one flock, one shepherd. So this shepherd unifies his sheep. Though they come from different backgrounds, Jew, Gentile, you name it, poor, rich, whatever, they're now one flock, one shepherd, And they're united to the shepherd himself and his father. Look at verse 14, the second half. I know my own, and my own know me just as the father knows me, and I know the father. Well, that'll blow your mind. Just as Jesus and the father know each other, so we know Jesus, and he knows us. What unthinkable intimacy. What... What an unparalleled bond that is for us and for our salvation. And he leads us. He goes before them. The sheep follow him. So he's with us. You see how this sheep and shepherd imagery is just, again, multi-layered, multi-faceted. He has forever hitched himself with us. If we're wandering in the wilderness He comes and he gets us and he puts us in the pen. He's with us. He feeds us. Verse 9, they will go in and out and find pasture, green pasture. He satisfies. Many of us know verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life and abundant life. You can think of life as what John elsewhere calls eternal life, forever life, length of life, so that when we die, we don't really die. We go through death into eternal life. But here, uniquely, is this phrase abundant life, life abundant, life to the full, not to the length, but to the fullness. As D.A. Carson defines abundant life, he says it's, it's like fat, contented, flourishing lambs, not terrorized by threat or trouble. Abundant life. Now you might wonder, abundant life, is that this life now or in the age to come? When does abundant life come? That's an important question. And here's where it's helpful to remember that theological phrase, now And not yet. There's an already and a not yet about so many things in this era in which we live. We have a foretaste of heaven 
in this way, in that way. And yet it's not heaven. It's now and it's not yet. Abundant life, that's got to be now. And yet it's not yet, not to the fullest, no way. Here's why it's so important to get this right and to, to have both the now and the not yet as it pertains to abundant life. Because to think that abundant life means abundance in every way, in, in every kind, in every form, now, well, you're just not living in reality. You just are trying to presume too much of heaven this side of Jesus' second coming. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disenchanted. But to think that life under the good shepherd in his pen, in his pasture, that that is only abundant in heaven? Oh, you miss out. This isn't just about what's to come after we die or Jesus returns. This is stuff he's offering us now. And on and on the list could go. How many and marvelous are the ways in which the shepherd cares for his sheep. So I ask you, do you have this care? Are you cared for like this? Where do you turn for your care if not to Jesus? I figure most of us, if not turning to Jesus for shepherding care, have opted to buffet, essentially. Essentially, look for this to bring this kind of thing. Look over there for that thing to bring that kind of thing of a need or a comfort. But could there be a single source for all our salvation and sustenance, all our satisfaction and protection, both here in this life now and in the age to come. Jesus offers that. Jesus offers that. And he insists he's the only option. And Christian, do you not feel cared for by your shepherd? Do you not this morning feel cared for afresh? Have you not forgotten ways in which he's shown you already his care? Have you, have you forgotten for a time the ways in which he is abundantly caring for your soul? And if you don't feel cared for this morning by Jesus because life is difficult, well, here's perhaps where you maybe thought abundant life now was more abundant than it is now. And maybe you haven't rested well on the abundance that is to come or trusted the shepherd as he leads us sometimes over some jagged rocks or some dry dirt without grass. Oh, he's faithful. He'll get us home. He's good. But it doesn't mean that every day in the pasture is going to be easy. He's never promised that. Even Psalm 23, on the one hand, the Lord's my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He lays me, lays me behind, uh, beside still waters. And yet, in the same psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a banquet before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, that's a life of tension there, isn't it? No fear, even though you're in the valley of the shadow of death banqueting even while the enemies look on threatening this is our shepherd this is life under his shepherding and then thirdly and quickly jesus is the good shepherd in unbreakable connection with the father he's in unbreakable connection with the father this is all over this chapter it was back in chapter eight as well 
Remember verse 14, that Jesus knows his own, his own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. It's on that basis that he lays his life down for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down. This is a charge he received from his Father. Do you know what this is saying? This is saying that our salvation in Jesus' shepherding of our souls is not just dependent on Jesus' death or his ongoing care for you or his indwelling Holy Spirit. It goes all the way back to the divine persons of the Trinity in fellowship and on mission for our salvation and our shepherding. Now this gets into issues of the Trinity. We believe in one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, well, where's the Holy Spirit in this passage? Ah, uh, Jesus will get to that. John 14, and then more in John 16. You can read those later on your own to see him explain the Holy Spirit, which he is sending he is sent by the Father, and he comes doing the will of his Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. In Latin, it's the pactum salutis. I will never forget the Latin of that theological category because one of my supervisors for my doctorate, he was a crusty old Dutchman. He smoked, he cussed, I think he was saved. <laughs> I mean that, I think. And one of the ways, one of the reasons I think he was saved is when he got talking about the pectum salutis and he would just bounce and yell and spit with excitement about the pectum salutis. It all goes back to the pectum salutis, the covenant of redemption. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, the covenant of redemption is the greatest affair between persons of the highest sovereignty and majesty that was ever transacted, either in heaven or earth or ever will be. This is among the deepest of theological propositions. And here it's offered to us as the surest comfort for our souls. What it means is that God's faithfulness to us rests on his faithfulness to himself. Jesus' faithfulness to us is his faithfulness to his Father. It's a charter given by the Father that Jesus comes to fulfill. As Jesus goes on to say later in chapter 10, look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Once again, mysterious, mind-blowing. You can't draw this sort of thing. But Jesus wants to be clear to us. He wants, to, he wants us to see even this imagery of us being in his divine hand and that being in the Father's hand and no one will get to us to take us out. No one can get to us to do us harm. Jesus and the Father are one. unbreakable connection to the Father is the basis for Jesus, the shepherd, dying for us, calling us, us hearing, him saving, us being united to each other, the spread of the gospel in the world, our witness, him leading and feeding and protecting, him keeping us to heaven all the way to heaven, all this rests on nothing less than God 
and the interrelationship of the persons of the Trinity in covenant, in partnership together. Unless Jesus was just making this stuff up. And so you got a decision. And so we see in the last few verses, verses 19 to 21, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many said, he has a demon. He's insane. They'll go on in verse 31 to say, hey, let's pick up stones and throw them at Jesus. And they say to Jesus a couple of verses later, we're stoning you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And they understood that aright. Jesus has indeed made himself out to be God. And so either he has a demon and is insane, and you should ignore him. But others there said, these aren't the words of someone who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? No, they can't. Jesus can. Jesus did. Jesus has done it again and again. And this is who we celebrate this Christmas and all year round. The one who was born in Bethlehem was not only attended by shepherds who came to worship the newborn king, but himself grew to be the, the shepherd. God the shepherd. David the shepherd. Our shepherd. Your shepherd. Be comforted by his care for you, which is so perfect, so intimate, so strong. It's everything you need even when you feel like you lack so much. And this is the one that we hold out to the world, trusting in that promise that Jesus has other sheep, not of the fold of Israel. They're out there, and they haven't yet heard, but they will hear. And they will believe. He uses us for that to happen. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are indeed a shepherd to us. We pray, Lord, we would marvel at your care for us. We pray, Lord, that even the weakest among us here would feel comforted this morning would feel enheartened this morning by your intimate, strong, saving, eternal, covenanted care for their souls. May we now sing of that with joy and thankfulness. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.